Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Ezra chapter 4. Hear now God's word. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it 
from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you please be seated? Lord God, would you open our eyes this morning that we might behold wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. What do we need to know about those who oppose God's kingdom? This passage and its connection to the rest of scripture have much to say to us. But we could ask the same question in light of the New Testament. Why would Jesus feel the need to tell his disciples to be wise as serpents? but innocent as doves. The the latter makes sense to us, but why would he want us to be crafty or snake-like in any way? That doesn't sit well for some of us. But one thing we know from scripture, from combat, from the lessons of history, is no enemy is more effective than one whose existence can be plausibly denied, whose identity is unknown, and whose operations are shrouded in secrecy. And so those are the heads of what we will consider in this passage. First, we see this beginning of verse 1, but also throughout, is the reality of opposition. The reality of opposition. We face a real enemy. 
a real and present danger actively working against the kingdom and people of God. And we cannot overemphasize the importance of remembering that our enemy is real. Because we're apt to deny that truth. To deny the reality of an enemy. It's like when you get in a fight with your sibling who thinks the world is against them. And you say, no, no one, no one is against you. There's no enemy. No one's doing that to you. Well, sometimes we think that the things we face are not because of an enemy. There's there's no real enemy out there. Or perhaps our greatest enemy is ourselves. We can do this with or without the help of the surrounding culture. Or we shrug off real danger. We talk about the danger of being practical atheists, where we worship the Lord on Sunday morning and perhaps on Wednesday night, but Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, except when our sports team's not doing well, we live as though those heavenly realities have no impact on our day to day. But we can do the same thing as we consider the enemy of the people of God. And we can live our day to day as though there is no real enemy. As though the world and the flesh and the devil are figments of someone's creative imagination. Or something gone by the wayside long ago. And sometimes because we are apt to forget that our enemy is real. And sometimes because we find our enemy in places where he's not. The world will see and will accuse the body of Christ of a, of a persecution complex. There's no one out there against you. There's no one working against the church. There's no one trying to change the culture and constrain your rights and make it difficult for believers to assemble for worship. And yet we saw over the last three years a crackdown on the assembly of believers coming together for worship. In a way, we did not see that carried out for sporting events, for riots, for shopping, for that matter. Beloved, our enemy is real, though we are apt to deny that enemy's reality. We are opposed by a real, a tangible, an active enemy. And as apt as we are to forget that here in North America, it's an undeniable reality in so many other parts of the world. We might think of Burma, of Sub-Saharan Africa, all across its breadth. 
of China and Iran and other places where real weapons are used against our brothers and sisters. Our enemy is real. And one thing we see among those courageous believers and also here in the text of Ezra is the joyful worship incites and stirs up that opposition. Look at how chapter 3 ended. Verse 13 of chapter 3 says, so that the people could not distinguish, right? So many shouted aloud for joy that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. The sound was heard far away. That sounds wonderful, glorious, joyful. But look at who heard says in chapter 4, verse 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, then they approached. Then chapter 4 came to pass. What stirred up their opposition? The joyful celebration of God's people, remembering and observing and remarking upon God's goodness to them. And if we're paying attention to this chapter, we also see that chapter 4 highlights that this opposition is not unique. It's not constrained to one generation. Because this chapter talks about things in the reign of Cyrus, in the reign of Darius, or Darius, going 50-50, which way I'd pronounce his name this morning. But then it hits pause, and it skips ahead a generation or even two generations, and talks about persecution in kind during the reign of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 24, it returns to this earlier frame, the reign, the second year of the reign of Darius. Is Ezra confused? Did he drop the stack of index cards that had the Persian leaders' names on it? No. He's showing us that the kind of opposition they faced during the reign of these earlier leaders when they sought to rebuild the temple continued through generations so that later, as their children and grandchildren sought to rebuild the wall, the opposition was still there. And if anything, intensified. Beloved, there are moments when this real opposition rears its head in a very clear way. There are times when that opposition is very subtle and is in the background. Let us be careful because it is dangerous in those moments 
to begin to ponder whether that opposition is in fact real. So we see in this chapter the reality of that opposition that God's people face as they seek to build his kingdom. But we also see the identity of the opposition. The identity of the opposition in this passage and others. You see, we're, we're told all the way back in Genesis 3 to anticipate opposition for God's people. The first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord speaks to the serpent. He said, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the moment sin enters the world, we find God's people opposed. But the surprise, as we keep reading Genesis, is that the first place that manifests is between brothers, between Cain and Abel. As we continue to read, we find that opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman manifesting in enmity between two groups of people because satanic and demonic opposition to the kingdom of God often operate through human agency through human agency and we see that in Ezra 4 as well And sometimes identifying that opposition is not always straightforward. Sometimes it's very overt. At the end of the chapter, people are showing up with weapons and a military force with a cease and desist. But at the beginning of the chapter, here come these folks who've heard the shouting. And they offer help. They say, we worship your God as you do. There's a little hint there. We worship your God, not we worship our God. And it can be very difficult in reading the beginning of this chapter to consider these folks who come with this offer. Is it a genuine offer? Do they become enemies? Because they're offended at an unjust rejection of their help. Because after all, they consider themselves worshipers of the Lord. But beloved, trust the text. Pay attention to the details of the text. How are these folks first described for us? In verse 1, now when the adversaries, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. Now 
what wisdom, what discretion, what discernment enabled Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses to know that these were not friends? I do not know. But careful discernment is often necessary. And especially among those who paint themselves as friends. Do they worship the Lord? Do they worship the Lord alone? Or do they put him on a shelf among several others on whom they may call? Are they happy to pray to the Father, but decline to pray in Jesus' name? Do they use the names of our God, but fill those names with different content? Do they trust not in the righteousness of Christ and its sufficiency, but in a pattern of observation or a treasury of merit or the intercession of others who are further along. Beloved, be careful. Be discerning. Syncretism is the fancy word to describe what we see here. What was practiced by these people who lived in the surrounding area. As they had been brought, the book of Kings tells us, as they described, they had been dumped in the land, the Lord's land, and continued to worship the gods of the lands from which they came. And so the Lord sent lions among them. And they thought, we have a problem. Quite an understatement. And the Assyrians sought priests and Levites among those they had scattered from the northern kingdom and sent them back to teach these people something of God's law that perhaps the lions at least might go away. Before these people who may very well worship the Lord, he is one among other gods. He is a source of help. A rock, not our rock. A God, your God, not our God. And when confronted with the exclusivity of the Lord and his people, they do not repent of their worship of false gods and seek as individuals to become enfolded into God's people, as we see witness to in the names we described in chapter 2, in the history of people like Rahab and the Gibeonites, Gibeonites. But instead, they oppose 
Their hackles are raised. They are offended and they take up arms against those who insist to be a little bit out of historical order. Anachronistic. They oppose those who insist on Christ alone. Often opposition and danger arises most strongly from those who seem like us, but refuse to submit to the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We've seen the reality of opposition. We've seen something of the identity of the opposition. What about the tactics of the opposition? We see this on display on a grand scale in this chapter. First in verse 2, they approach Zerubbabel, the other leaders, and they have flattering words. And they have smoke signals that are offering help while probably seeking to harm. They're masters of distraction and deception. They'll come and offer words that soothe and encourage and puff up. But it's smoke and mirrors. It's a diversion from what they are really there to do. We see such things in our own day. And what happens when they don't work? What happens when someone can't worm their way into your good graces by telling you how amazing you are? Right? Then the opposition rears its head. We see in verses 4 and 5, as, as they are rebuffed, how do they respond? They actively discourage those building God's kingdom. They make them afraid. And they go so far as to bribe government officials against the people of Judah. They discourage, they fear, they they cause fear, they meddle. They seek to intimidate. This one example among many. And we see this in our own time. As people are threatened at work, as people are threatened with the loss of their church buildings, as people are threatened with physical harm. For nothing more and nothing less than being faithful to Christ. And seeking to make his name known. But then we get a full scale picture of one group's detailed workings. Multiple letters are sent, described to us, but we get the careful interaction between one. We see in verse 6, they write a letter accusing. God's people in Judah 
and Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, another. And then perhaps later, this may be yet a third, or it may be a further description of the second. As they work the system to accuse God's people. They describe themselves as as faithful and trustworthy servants of a loving and benevolent world power, worming their way into the good graces of the Persian emperor. And then they portray the people of God as a threat. See how skilled they are in developing that narrative. Just so you know, they're rebuilding this city. Which city is that? Oh, the city that is at the heart of rebellion after rebellion and uprising after uprising. And then they pull a LeVar Burton, right? They say, you don't have to take my word for it. Go look at the records. Go look at the records. Jerusalem, of course, rebelled against Assyria when Assyria sought to extend its dominion over the promised land. They rebelled against Babylon, refusing to listen to God's prophets and submit to their punishment for breaking the covenant. They rose up against the rulers of Babylon, and hence Jerusalem was destroyed. And the Persians, as those who conquered the Babylonians, who conquered the Assyrians, had records upon records of this. Very effective painting of the narrative. And then they talk to the emperor where they know they'll make the most impact. Oh, your highness, this will hit you in the wallet if you don't do something now. Flattery and obfuscation, sowing confusion. Discouragement, fear, bribery, careful political maneuvering. All coming to a head in verse 23 as their tactics take the shape of open military force. As they show up bearing arms and compel God's people to cease and desist. These are the tactics of the opposition. Ranging from flattering words to flashing swords. The last thing we see in verse 24, as we resume the narrative at the time of Darius, is the effects that opposition can have as that discouragement and fear works its way into the hearts and minds of God's people. The reality, the identity, the tactics of the opposition have great power for harm. And here in Ezra chapter 4, our adversary is able 
to accomplish his purpose for a time. As God's people are cowed and they leave off building. Let's return to the text that first alerted us to the reality of opposition and the fact that we should expect it. Back in Genesis 3, verse 15. Because yes, the opposition is real. Yes, we are right to see the enmity. There is also a promise of defeat. I'll read verse 14 and 15 of Genesis 3 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The Israelites knew that snakes don't eat dirt. But this is a picture that embodies the ultimate defeat and humiliation. And the Lord goes on to say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the end of Ezra chapter 4, it's as though we've read the first two and the last line of Genesis 3.15. We see the enmity. We see the serpent strike the heel. We must remember that part of that promise is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And just as Ezra 4 is not the last chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the narrative of scripture takes us all the way to the work of Christ and the defeat of our last enemy and the wedding supper of the Lamb. Beloved, our enemy is real. And sometimes it looks like our enemy has won the day. But our enemy has lost the war. And all we see now are the death throes of one whose days are numbered and whose neck is chained. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the witness of the book of Ezra. that reminds us of the reality of our enemy, that speaks caution, that encourages us to seek your face, to pray against the powers of darkness, but that also reminds us and points us to the work of Christ, foretold for them, remembered by us, May we draw encouragement from these truths. May we be emboldened 
to speak of the Lord Jesus, to make his name known. And may you receive all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.